0: It is always the pinnacle of worship to humble ourselves before the preaching of the Word of God. And I invite you to come with me now as we once again return to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, and we will be focusing on verses 1 through 15 this morning. Let me read the text to you. And then we will begin to unpack it. Acts 17, verse 1. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer And rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authority, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason, the others, they released them. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also They came there likewise, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those were conducted, who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Acts 17 reveals to us the continued evangelistic efforts of Paul and Silas and Timothy. It would seem that Luke is no longer with them at this point. And they have left Philippi, having seen many come to Christ, including Lydia and the jailer and their households and Now they are going to proclaim the gospel of grace to Thessalonica, to Berea, and then later on to Athens. And Paul's ministry, like that of the twelve, followed the pattern that was set down by the Lord in Acts 1-8 to be his witnesses in Jerusalem first and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Therefore, Paul's ministry principle was always to the Jew first and also to the Greek as he expressed in Romans 1.16. And though he was specifically called to be an apostle to the Gentiles, as we read in Galatians 1.16, that was not his exclusive calling, you must understand. In fact, you will recall in Acts 9.15, when the Lord told Ananias to go to Paul, he said, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and... Kings and the sons of Israel. Moreover, going first to the synagogues was a very effective way of reaching Gentiles because, as we've just read here in verse 4, there were many proselytes, many God seekers in the synagogue. Many Gentiles would worship there as well and eventually in acts we're going to see that he moves from a very strong Jewish focus especially in Thessalonica and Berea to a much more gentile focus when he comes to Athens. So Paul goes first to the synagogues having a deep love love and passion for his countrymen to embrace the Messiah and again later on you will see the focus of his ministry in Luke's account here in acts being upon the heathen in the Gentile region there in Athens in the marketplace and so on. But first we see the focus here on the Jews in Thessalonica and Berea. And what we see are two very different receptions to the truth. Very different receptions to the whole idea that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus of Nazareth. But before we examine what happens here in these places, may I remind you of a few facts that I think are typically forgotten in our American bubble of freedom of religion, as well as the naivety that we typically see even in evangelicalism. And the facts that I want to remind you of is simply this. The world violently hates what we believe. What comes out of this pulpit, hopefully what you believe, is something that the world absolutely, utterly despises. Don't be naive, dear friends. Just because we live in a culture of so-called tolerance, people are tolerant of everything but the truth. And given a chance, they would kill us for what we believe. If there were not laws to protect us, we would be like many in other Parts of the world. We, had, they, we understand today that there's an estimated 1,000 Christians that are killed approximately every day because of their faith in Christ. God currently allows Satan to rule this world. We read that in John 12, 31. We know that he is the prince in the power of the air. The Bible tells us, and, and also in 1 John 5, 19, we read of him who is the the one who has the whole world lying in his lap. It says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He is, according to Paul's word in Second Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world, small g, who has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. In fact, as we read scripture, we see that the world can be divided into two very simple groups, two categories. You have the children of God and the children of the devil. First John 310. And we know that Satan opposes the work of God. We read, for example, in Zechariah chapter three and verse one, where Satan is described as this wicked fiend that stands in the presence of God to remind God of Israel's sin and therefore their unworthiness of divine favor. There we read the prophet saying "Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. May I remind you, dear friends, that Satan is called the adversary. He is the accuser of the brethren, as we read in Scripture It may also remind you, unlike what many will teach, Satan is not in hell. In fact, Satan spends much of his time, certainly as our adversary, the devil, that prowls about seeking whom he might devour. We read that in 1 Peter 5. But also we know that he spends much of his time in heaven around the throne of God. Too many people surprise. In fact, in Revelation 12:10, we read that he is the one who accuses them before our God day and night. The text goes on to remind us that eventually he will be cast out of heaven and no longer have access to the throne of God. Dear Christian, you must understand that the world hates the Bible. The world hates the gospel. The world hates God and obviously hates the Lord Jesus Christ. You listen to the academics in our colleges and universities, and you will see this. You listen to our politicians, and you will see this. You listen to some of the leading organizations that basically control the culture, the National Education Association, the ACLU, the World Council of Churches, those types of things, and you will see how much they hate the truth of the gospel. And some will say, no, 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 come on, pastor. Not so. Look at all of the people of faith around the world. And may I humbly say to you that that is an ignorant statement because most of these people of faith, which is frankly uh, a phrase that is couched in the language of political correctness, these people of faith really do not have faith in the true and the living God. In fact, people of faith is really a euphemism for idolatry. Because the God, the, word, the God that they worship is not the God of the Bible. And so many people are sucked into this, thinking that we're all just one big happy family. They don't worship the one triune God of the Bible. They don't worship the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. They don't worship the God who is holy in all of his attributes, who exists eternally in three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, each equally deserving of our worship. They do not worship an infinite, all-knowing spirit, a sovereign creator and sustainer and consummator of all things. That's not the God they worship. They do not worship the God that sent the Lord Jesus Christ to pay for the sins of those who will believe. In fact, this concept of the people of faith is a very ecumenical one. This idea that we all just worship the same God here. We all just need to get along. We all worship the same God, whoever he or she might be. And if you look at the people of faith, for the most part, as it's typically called, you will find that they tend to jettison the doctrines that they believe divide. And certainly doctrine does divide. It divides truth from error. And you will see that they reduce religious beliefs to its lowest common denominator, which is basically God is a God of love, so we all need to just love one another. And you will see that tolerance has become the supreme virtue in our culture. And we basically all need to just kind of hold hands, regardless of what people believe, whether it's Islam, Buddhism, whatever. And we just kind of need, need to sing Kumbaya And just live and let live and everybody get along. And, of course, the postmoderns come along and say, well, you know, we need to do this because, after all, there's no such thing as absolute truth. And of that we are absolutely certain. (laughs) And so, therefore, we don't need to be dogmatic and just get along. But, you know, God says something very different. He says, you shall have no other gods before me, period. Anybody can understand that. And yet we see people that have concocted all kinds of gods, even in apostate neo-evangelicalism. Think of the newly invented Jesus that we have today that winks at sin. Think of the newly invented God that is basically a stingy God where we've got to learn certain formulas to somehow pry goodies out of his stingy little fingers. Think of the newly invented God that is always learning, that is not sovereign, and he's trying to figure this thing out as he goes. Think of the newly invented God that is basically a good old boy kind of God that just wants us all to have a good time and be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Yet we know, according to the Bible, That this is not the true God. In fact, the people of the world today worship a God that is not even holy. And therefore, the last thing that they want to hear is that they are filled with sin. And that unless they repent and unless God does something to them and gives them a spiritual heart transplant, they will die in their sins. People don't want to hear that. People do not want to hear that all that they are and all that they do is fundamentally offensive to God. They don't want to hear that. And yet this is precisely the message of the gospel. You must first know the bad news before you can embrace the good news. You see, people do not want to hear that God has made it clear that if you have not, Repented of your sins and embraced Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. The wrath of God abides upon you and someday he will judge you and judge you eternally. And the people of faith say, if that is the God you worship, I don't want anything to do with that. I hate that God. That's my point. Others will say, well, but wait a minute. Look at all the Christians in the world. All the people that claim to be Christians. Well, yes, we hear that all the time. But Jesus said that most of them are deceived. Matthew 7. Most of them are deceived. They think they're saved, but they're not. Remember in Matthew 7, there are the few and the many. There's the narrow and the wide, the narrow and the broad. Few are going to enter through the narrow gate, but many are going to go through the wide gate and travel down the broad way. That's why the Lord went on to say that not everyone that calls me Lord will enter the kingdom. In fact, he said that many of them won't. The idea that most of them, they claim to be Christians, will never enter the kingdom. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. People don't like to hear that, do they? Jesus said in Acts Well, it was said of Jesus in Acts 4.12 that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Beloved, do you realize that most Christians do not believe that verse? They believe that there are many other ways. And certainly that would eliminate Judaism. It would eliminate Islam, Buddhism, and every other non-Christian religion in the history of the world. And some will say, well, wait a minute, what about the one point, however, billion Roman Catholics that are in the world? Beloved, again, I would submit to you, you study Roman Catholic doctrine and you will see that they hate the gospel of grace. They worship a very different God than the God of the Bible. Roman Catholicism is, for the most part, a merry cult, and they have grossly distorted virtually every doctrine of the Bible. They do not believe that salvation is of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. But it's rather grace plus works, faith plus works, Christ plus Mary plus works. And people will say to me, and I've heard this so many times, why must you be so dogmatic? And the answer is simply this, because my spiritual authority is the Bible, the word of God. And it is the only truth that can save. So your narrow little way is the only way. My response is, no, it's Jesus' narrow little way that is the only way. Well, if all of that is true, then I do hate your God. I hate your Jesus. I hate your Bible and I hate your gospel. And my response is, yes, I know, not just from experience, but also because of what the Word of God says. The Word of God says that you are spiritually dead. The word says that you suppress the truth and unrighteousness, that the word of God is foolishness to you. The word tells us that Satan has blinded your heart and your mind, that he steals the word out of your heart and that you worship your father, the devil. The word tells me that you will turn away your ears from the truth and you will turn aside unto myths. The Bible tells me that you will love darkness rather than light because your deeds are evil. The word of God will say For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deed should be exposed. John 3.20 I know you hate all of these things because you hate God and love yourself much more. In fact, I know because the word of God tells me that your God is your belly and your glory is your shame. Philippians 3.19 I know that you hate all of this because the word of God tells me in 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 2, That those apart from Christ are lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, blasphemous, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So I understand why you would say that. I also understand it because I know, according to Romans 1, that since you suppress the truth about God as creator as well as holy judge, In other words, because you reject what your conscience tells you about your own sin and God's holiness, as well as what reason tells you about God being the creator of all that we see, because you reject all of that, because you've exchanged the truth for a lie. Because you profess to be wise, but you were a fool. I know that God has given you over to a worthless mind, that you have no understanding of the glorious truths of the word of God. And as a result of that, according to Romans 1, you have become slaves to immorality. You even embrace the wretched perversion of homosexuality. And you have been given over to a worthless mind. The text says being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil. Full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving and unmerciful. And the word also tells me in Romans two, beginning in verse five, that because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. So I understand why you hate the God that I love and that has transformed me by his grace. Now, beloved, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is simply this. Everything that I have just said that comes from the word is something that a Christian will embrace wholeheartedly. A Christian will say, oh, amen. I see the wretchedness of my sin and I recognize that apart from God's grace I would still remain incarcerated in this wickedness and bondage to sin with nothing to restrain me from sin. I understand that all of that is true. Therefore, I rejoice in God's grace that has transformed me. But nonbelievers will hear the assessment of their condition and they will resent it with their teeth clenched together. You see, Christians will confess their sin. In Greek, confess is a compound word, homo legeo. Homo is the same, legeo to speak. We speak the same thing as God about our sin. And folks, we wouldn't even do that had God not done a work of grace in our hearts. No wonder the world hates the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ and all those who proclaim it and live it. Now, I want you to understand the hatred, therefore, of Paul and Silas and Timothy and the others. Now, worse yet, they come into the Jews and say, you know what? This Jesus of Nazareth that you crucified, he was the Messiah. Boy, that's a hard sell. You see, they were looking for a political hero, a conquering king that would establish the kingdom that was promised, free them from Roman oppression. They weren't looking for a suffering Messiah that would die an ignominious death on on a Roman cross. After all, they were keeping the law and they were righteous. So again, dear friends, the world hates the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and those who proclaim it, those who live it. And these folks will be the people that will manifest four virtues that the world hates. Thus, the title of my discourse to you this morning. And here's what they are. They will hate number one purity of life number two love for the lost number three courage in preaching and fourthly a knowledge of the word the world hates those virtues and yet that's what we see here in the text before us first of all I want you to notice the purity of life and this is really implied in the text before I really get into it think about this how could anyone endure what Paul and Silas endured I mean, all of the exhausting travel, the ridicule, the slander, the, the, the scourgings, the beatings, the imprisonment, the torturous racks that I mentioned to you last week, the stocks. How could anybody possibly endure that unless they were filled with the Spirit of God? I mean, th- this is hu- superhuman types of things that they, that, that they did to endure that and continue to love the people that tortured them. You see, friends, you cannot be filled with the spirit apart from being obedient to him, apart from surrendering to him, being intoxicated by him. That's why Paul said in Ephesians 5:18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit. And here's the result of that speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. And isn't that precisely what they did in the dungeon in Philippi? How can you do that unless you're filled with the spirit? He says, always giving thanks for all for the for all the things in in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the father. And Paul would later write in Galatians five, he would say, but I say walk by the spirit. In other words, I want you to surrender yourself to the spirit of God as he reveals himself to us in his word. On a moment-by-moment basis, I want you to walk by the Spirit. And here's what's going to happen if you do that. If you choose to do that by His power, you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit. And don't we all experience that tug of war? And the Spirit against the flesh. For these things are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. And again, the flesh would have said to Paul and Silas, you guys need to give up. I mean, this is stupid. I mean, look where this is getting you. And the Spirit says, no, I want you to trust me. I want you to obey me. Your reward will be great in heaven someday. And as a result, in Galatians 5, we we read what happens when we walk by the Spirit. We begin to produce the fruit of the Spirit. The love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And Paul would later on say, Now those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passion and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And beloved, this describes the life of Paul and Silas and Barnabas and Luke and Timothy and and even John Mark. Later on in his letter to the Thessalonians, Paul implored them to become imitators of us and of the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 6. And later. He described what they all knew to be true about them and his companions. Here's what he said in 1 Thessalonians 2.10. Talk about purity of life. Listen to this. You are my witnesses and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Beloved, let me make this real practical to you. You will never be effective in ministry unless you are committed to purity in life. You're just never going to be effective unless you're filled with the Spirit, unless you're walking by the Spirit. Apart from divine, supernatural enablement, your work will always be in the flesh. It it, it will be deficient. You will not bear fruit. It will be boring. It will be frustrating. And someday when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, it's going to be burned up as wood, hay, and stubble. And of course, the world hates these virtues. And that's why they falsely accused Paul and Silas and ran him out of town. And you know, nothing's changed. Can you imagine today our politicians ever passing any legislation reflecting the greatest commandment? We now hereby make it a law that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and you love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine them legislating any of the Ten Commandments? And by the way, I'm not suggesting they do that. We don't want to legislate morality and make a bunch of hypocrites out of people and make them think that they're saved just because they're moral when there has never been true repentance and a genuine transformation. I'm not saying that. But again, today, the world considers anybody that lives a pure life as some kind of a religious fanatic. I mean, today, Christian fundamentalists, as, as as we are, are compared to Al-Qaeda. It's amazing. So, the first virtue that the world hates is purity of life. Secondly, love for the lost. And I fear many Christians do not have this. Examine your heart, dear friends, as we look at this. Notice in verse 1, now when they had traveled... Through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, let me point out a couple of things. By the way, when you study the Bible, you should always have a map close by because it will reveal many things to you. Philippi to Amphipolis is about 30 miles. It's another 30 miles to Apollonia. And it's then another 40 miles from Apollonia to Thessalonica. Now, stop and think about it. These guys had just been beaten severely. (laughs) They, they they were still in excruciating pain. And now they're going to go 100 miles in three days by foot? I don't think so. Pretty good indication here that the folks at Philippi gave them some horses. And as a horseman, I know that about 25 to 30 miles is about all you want in one day, traveling from one place to another. And so probably they were supplied some horses there in Philippi. But think about this. Talk about love for the lost. I think... That I would have probably given up at that point. You know what? I need a long vacation here. My back is still bruised and bloody. I've got cuts all around my ribs from the scourging. My 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 groin and my legs and my pelvis are still aching from the excruciating torture of the stocks. You know what? I think I'm going to take a long vacation here. But a love for the lost is going to say something very different. And that's what happened here. And so... They traveled to Amphipolis and then Apollonia. They didn't stop there. There was probably no synagogue there because you had to have at least 10 men there that ruled their families before there would be a synagogue. And so he went on to Thessalonica, which was the capital of Macedonia. About 200,000 people were in population there today. That is Thessaloniki in Greece. At verse 2, we read that according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths He reasoned with them from the scriptures. Now, folks, let me give you an idea of what that would be like. Imagine if today you went to Iran or Saudi Arabia and you entered into one of their mosques. And you said to them, dear people, you are believing a lie. And unless you place your faith in the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will die in your sins and face eternal damnation. How do you think that would go over? You know, you would probably not survive. Imagine the ridicule and the hostility. Friends, this was really, no, or that would be very, there would be very little difference in that and what Paul and Silas did in going into the synagogues. Notice in verse 3, they explain and gave evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus who I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. Basically, what he would have argued is that Jesus was whom the Old Testament's The Old Testament prophets foretold as the Messiah, that by God's sovereign plan, he was rejected by his people and that he died on the cross as the Lamb of God, a substitute for our sins. Dear friends, that's what was pictured in all of the Levitical sacrifices. He would have gone on to say that as prophesied in the Old Testament, he rose again from the dead. He would have told them that your law here, the law cannot save you. The law was meant to drive you to a Savior who could. So you must repent and confess Jesus of Nazareth as Lord and Savior, or someday God will judge you for your unbelief. Obviously, Paul knew nothing about being seeker-sensitive. He just told them the truth. And Paul was really willing to risk his life to tell them the truth. Why? Because he had a love for the lost. And this resulted in the third virtue that the world hates, and that's courage in preaching. You know, we see this all through Paul's ministry. <laughs> I've said this before, I'll, I'll say it again. All this silliness in churches today where you try to soften people up and you soften the truth, and you do that by kind of jettisoning, jettisoning all um, anything that is offensive, certainly Bible doctrine, so as not to offend. Friends, all of that is the opposite of having a love for the lost. Instead, that's a love for self because you want to attract a crowd and make more money and, you know, give some garage band a chance to have a stage and all that type of stuff. Beloved, may I remind you that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We can't be ashamed of the gospel. You see, people cannot be saved unless they're first told that they're lost. And so people must be confronted with the holiness of God. They must be told about their sin They must be warned of impending judgment. That's why Paul would say later in Romans 10, beginning of verse 13, listen to this. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he says something interesting. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? Then he says next, and and how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher, literally without a proclamation? The point is, it's not going to happen. Yes, pastor, but it's so offensive. You've got to understand, you've got to tone it down. You've got to soften people up a little bit. And you've got to appeal to to their felt needs about their condition and all of that type of thing. Folks, there's one big problem with that. Spiritual cadavers, people that are spiritually dead in their sins, have no felt needs about their sin. They have no felt needs about their need for a Savior. Beloved, there is absolutely no example anywhere in Scripture that supports this seeker sensitive gospel light that is indicative of modern evangelical pragmatism. You just don't see that. Yes, we need to be kind and loving and winsome, but we've got to be honest. We've got to be bold. We've got to be forthright. If we love people, can you imagine going to a doctor? then, doctor, you know, I'm not feeling so great, but I guess I'm going to be okay. And so the doctor gives you a physical, and the physical shows some things that aren't very good. And the doctor says, well, I don't want to tell them this because I don't want to offend them here. You know, I, I don't want you to be mad at me. So, well, doc, what, uh, you know, how's things going? Well, you know what, I, you know, we just need to maybe go out to eat and get to know each other better. Versus the doctor saying something that they don't want to hear and say, look, I need to tell you, um, you smoke, you eat all the wrong things, you're morbidly obese, and therefore uh, you've got cardiovascular disease, uh, diabetes is beginning to to wreak havoc, uh, you've got degenerating discs or whatever, and and unless you change and unless you undergo some treatment, uh, you are going to die a premature death. I mean, isn't that what the, you want to hear from the doctor? I mean, yes and no, but you want the truth. Beloved, in Romans nine thirty-three, we read, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Of course, the gospel is going to be offensive because it goes against the grain of our sinfulness. 1 Corinthians one twenty three, Paul said, We preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. And boy, isn't that our culture? I mean, they, they hear guys like me and they think, Man, this guy is a knuckle-dragging Neanderthal that needs to live in a cave somewhere and eat raw meat. I mean, he, he is nuts. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Paul went on to say, Preaching Christ crucified Is the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So for this reason, Paul tells them at the end of verse three, this Jesus who I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. It's as if he's saying, I know this is not what you believe. I know this is not what you want to hear. But dear friends, it is the truth and it is the only truth that can save your soul. And I am willing to risk my life to tell you that truth. Because I love you and I love my Lord. My friends, this is courage in preaching combined with the conviction that the gospel is indeed the power of God unto salvation. And friends, if you don't believe that, then you're going to water it down. If you do believe it, you're you're going to unleash it and watch what it will do. Notice the reaction of verse four. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a great multitude of the God fearing Greeks And a number of the leading women. So, in other words, there was a rich harvest of souls here in Thessalonica. But then in verse five and six, we see that the Jews become jealous. They take along some wicked men from the marketplace. They form a mob, set the city in an uproar. They come to the house of Jason and they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, in other words, they didn't find Paul and Silas, Timothy, What'd they do? Well, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities and they shout, these men have upset the world, who have upset the world have come here also, which is a ridiculous overstatement, but frankly, a common form of slander among those that hate the gospel. Again, think of of it today, how people even in our culture continue to blame everything against Christian fundamentalists. You know, we're impeding the growth of civilization and so on with our... Ridiculous religious ideas, but that's just how it's going to be until the Lord comes. And then in verse seven, notice how they accuse Jason here. Then Jason was has welcomed them and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. By the way, we know nothing really about Jason. It was a Jewish name. He was probably now a new believer, along with some others that were there with him. But this was a serious charge because it was basically the charge of treason. And you might also need to know that eventually this would be the very charge that would cost Paul his life because the Roman Caesar would permit no rivals to his throne. So in verse eight, they stir up the crowd, and the city authorities who heard these things. And then when they had received the pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. So they get some type of a pledge. We don't really know anything about it. But the simple solution is now, hey, we've got to get out of town. So they're forced to leave. And so, so that's what they did. But I want you to understand, dear friends, that the deep love that Paul had and Silas had and Timothy had for these new children in the faith is something that is so remarkable and cannot be under underestimated. In fact, we see later in First Thessalonians, he writes back to these dear believers. In chapter 2, verse 17, here's what he said. But we, brethren, having been bereft of you for a short while in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan thwarted us. Can I digress for a moment and ask you something? Isn't that interesting? Paul is saying, I wanted to come back to you. We wanted to come back to you, but Satan thwarted us. I find it intriguing here. Why would Satan be so bent on preventing them from returning? I mean, I mean they're, they're already believers here. I mean, why is it that Satan doesn't want them to come back? Well, the answer is quite simple. And you must hear this. Because Satan utterly despises discipleship. Because discipleship produces mature believers. And mature believers reproduce Please understand, dear friends, that first of all, Satan's top priority is to prevent anyone from being snatched from his kingdom. He wants to do anything he can to prevent people from coming to Christ. But when they do, his next top priority for a Christian is to stunt your growth, to prevent you from being nourished by sound doctrine, to keep you dumb. Because if you do not understand sound doctrine, you will not have discernment. And if you have no discernment, you will never grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. You will never have a hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You will be immature. You will be ignorant and typically proud of it. Wondering, why can't I get my life on track? One of Satan's common strategies is to prevent, for example, you having access to pastor teachers. That's why I go back again to Ephesians 4. He said that the pastor teacher has been given to you for the equipping of the saints. Why? For the work of service. Satan hates that. To the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. To a mature man, to a measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Satan hates that. Doesn't want that to happen. As a result, the text goes on to say, we are no longer to be children. Satan loves that. Tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. See, Satan loves that. He wants you to be like a child that gets suckered into everything. But speaking the truth in love, Paul says, we are to grow up. In all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. That's what Satan hates. That's why he violently opposes any of you growing in the grace of the knowledge of Christ through learning the word of God and applying it to your life. Why do you think so many ostensibly evangelical churches that are nothing more than a glorified rock concert in a Starbucks grow like they do? Why do you think that happens? I hear people say, oh, boy, God's really blessing this church. No, he's not. God doesn't have anything to do with that church. It's Satan that's blessing that church because there he can bring people in. What a brilliant strategy. Create the appearance of worship and create the appearance that you're being in a church church. And yet, really, what you have is a church, for the most part, filled with spiritual cadavers. And then give them some gospel light where they'll really never understand their sin or their need for a savior. Widen the gate so far that anybody that can fog a mirror can be saved. And then finally, keep them dumb. Don't ever teach them any doctrine so that they will never grow. This is why Satan ran Paul and Silas and Timothy out of Thessalonica. And this is his strategy in many of your lives, to keep you dumb so that you will never have any discernment and you will never grow. And you will forfeit blessing in your life and in many cases bring reproach upon the name of Christ. But notice their courageous preaching. Now it takes them to Berea where the Jews were more open. Let me just read this to you again. And the brethren, verse 10, immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, these were more noble minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness. Anakrino in the original language, it is a, a judicial term. And it means to examine something. It it was used to describe um, uh, sifting through evidence, looking at it up and down and all the way in between so that you can make a careful. um, uh, A a careful not only uh, an observation, but a careful understanding and basically give the proper verdict of the truth. And that's what they did. They received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And many of them, therefore, believed with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out, and we read the rest, how they come and they stir everything up. And eventually, Paul moves on to Athens. And we will pick that up next week in more detail. So again, dear friends, all through this account, we witness these virtues that the world hates. Purity of life. That gives people a supernatural power to be able to preach the gospel and to persevere in great persecution. A love for the lost that translates into a dedication to see people come to Christ as well as disciple them come what may. And a courage in preaching that will be bold and reveal what people hate. But finally, one final virtue here that the world hates, and that is knowledge of the word. Notice in verse two at the end, it says for three Sabbaths, they reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ has to suffer and rise again from the dead, reasoned with them. Dialegami in Greek, we get our word dialogue from that. It means that it's it's to reason or to argue or to dispute, to teach, to give a discourse that would invite Q&A. That's what Paul did. Now, this would require an intimate knowledge of the word of God. He was challenging their beliefs by expositing the scriptures to them and interacting with them. And again, the world hates these kind of guys. Ignorance is bliss. Don't confuse me with the facts. Tell me what I want to hear. And of course, we know truth demands scrutiny and error demands tolerance. That's why. We are told in 1 Peter 3.15 that we need to be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks us to give an account for the hope that is in us, yet with gentleness and reverence. And we see the same thing happening there in Berea, where they are examining the scriptures that were taught taught to them. I want to close with these thoughts this morning. Sadly, having a deep, intimate knowledge of the word of God is simply not a priority in modern evangelicalism today, even among many pastors, Christian researcher George Barner said this, and I quote, the Christian body in America is immersed in a crisis of biblical illiteracy. How else can you describe matters when most church going adults reject the accuracy of the Bible? reject the existence of Satan, claim that Jesus sinned, see no need to evangelize, believe that good works are one of the keys to persuading God to forgive their sins, and describe their commit to, commitment to Christianity as moderate or even less firm. Many disturbing findings document an overall lack of knowledge among Christians Including the following study that I read and I quote the most widely known Bible verse among adult and teen believers is God helps those who help themselves. Which is not actually in the Bible and actually conflicts with the basic message of the Bible. And it says less than one out of every 10 believers possess a biblical worldview as the basis of his or her decision making or behavior. The study went on to say, when given 13 basic teachings from the Bible, only 1% of adult believers firmly embraced all 13 as being biblical perspectives. Some research that was conducted at Wheaton College, in which the biblical and theological literacy of incoming freshmen were monitored, gave some very interesting information. And these would be students who represent every Protestant denomination in the United States. Here's what they found. One-third could not put the following in order, Abraham, the Old Testament prophets, the death of Christ, in Pentecost. Half could not sequence the following, Moses in Egypt, Isaac's birth, Saul's death, and Judah's ex- exile. One-third could not identify Matthew as an apostle from a list of New Testament names. And when asked to locate the biblical book supplying a given story, one-third could not find Paul's travels in Acts, Half did not know that the Christmas story was in Matthew and half did not know that the Passover story was in Exodus. George Lindbeck, the famous Yale theologian, has commented on the decreasing knowledge of Scripture from a professor's perspective. Here's what he said, and I quote, When I first arrived at Yale, even those who came from non-religious backgrounds knew the Bible better than most of those now who come from church-going families, end quote. The theologian David Wells says, and I quote, I have watched with growing disbelief as the evangelical church has cheerfully plunged into astounding theological illiteracy. End quote. According to Barna Research of Baptists, I'll just give you one example, a Baptist of any type in America, only 34% believe Satan is real. Only 43% believe that works don't earn heaven. I mean, people, these folks aren't saved. Only fifty five percent affirmed that Christ was sinless. Sixty six percent hold that the Bible is totally accurate. And only fifty one percent believe Christians have the responsibility to witness to others. Al Mohler comments, and I quote, the trends Barna traces have been progressing for several years. Americans have been negotiating away the core doctrines of the Christian faith, all the while claiming to remain Christians. But Christianity, he says, is defined by certain definite and non-negotiable doctrines. Without these, there is no Christianity at all. Just the emptying sanctuaries of declining churches and denominations. End quote. Beloved, I would humbly ask you to examine yourself this morning in light of these four virtues that the world hates. Do you possess a purity of life? Or when people look at your life, do they see really no difference from other people in the world? Do you have a love for the lost or are you indifferent towards them? Do you have courage in preaching and presenting the gospel or do you prefer to let other people do it? Or when you do have to say anything, you want to water it down so it really has no resemblance of the truth so that nobody will be offended because ultimately you fear man more than you fear God. And finally, do you have a knowledge of the word? Is that something that you want or is that just not very important? Do you really think you're as mature as God would have you be? Are you really that arrogant? Or do you say, oh God, help me to know more of you, know more of your word that it might fill all of my being, that I might enjoy all that you would have me to enjoy as one of your own and bring glory to you. And stand before you someday and hear you say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. I pray that that will be your prayer. And for those of you that don't know Christ, Oh, dear friend, how I pray that you will see your sin today by God's grace. And humble yourself before the cross and cry out for mercy. That today will be the day that you experience the miracle of the new birth. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for... These truths, I pray that you will apply them to our hearts, that we might glorify you in ways that perhaps we have never been able to do before this day. And Lord, we pray that you will convict those that need you. Give them no rest on their pillow until they recognize that in fact they do not know, nor love, nor serve the true and the living God. I pray, Lord, that you will make them miserable. Until they find peace through Christ. For it's in His name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to Pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olive tree resources.org.